Our scripture reading today is Acts 17, 16 through 34. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, please open the eyes of our understanding and prepare our hearts by the power of your spirit, that we may receive your word with much joy, and may we leave today having a deeper understanding of who you are. In your name we pray, amen. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does the babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has a fixed day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus and the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. The word of God for the people of God. So last time I spoke, uh, we were in chapter 16, and so this happens directly after uh, the experience that Paul had with, uh, with the jailer. He's continuing through his uh, ministerial journey through various lands. Before this, he was in Thessalonica, and then he was in Berea. And now, now Paul finds himself in Athens. Athens, this is a huge city. This is an important city. This is the cultural and philosophical and religious and everything capital of the world at that time. This is the city of Plato and Aristotle. Even now, when we think about Athens, we think of all of the ancient wonders, the statues, the, the buildings, that, that influence of this city is still in our minds. If we go to Nashville and see the Parthenon, that's a big building. With that statue inside, if you've seen it, that's big. It's intimidating. It's, it's a lot. 
So Paul, though, when he came upon this city and he, and he saw these statues and he saw these important intellectual super, super special people, he was not intimidated. Instead, Paul does what he does best. He engaged that culture and he preached the gospel. And he preached it everywhere. He went to the synagogues and preached to the Jews. He preached it in the marketplace, in the street, to literally anybody that would listen to him. And as he was doing that, the intellectual elites, the, the philosophical special people, they heard him and they were intrigued. What's this crazy guy saying? Who's he talking about? Who is this Jesus? And why does he keep talking about him? And so they bring him to the Areopagus. This is the center stage of thought and debate. This is where they talked about stuff. This wasn't a legal trial. He's not in trouble. They just want to hear more about what he's talking about. And so Paul addresses the crowd. He points out their religiosity. He points out all the idols that they're worshiping. And he, and he even talks about that idol to the unknown God that they have. And he proceeds to educate them on, let me tell you about who this unknown God is. This is the only God. This is is the true God. This is the God who created everything. This is the God who is not bound by the physical objects of your idols. This is not a God who can be controlled by humanity. He is sovereign over nature and time and governments. And this is a God who brings purpose and life, but also judgment. And so Paul brings this message to the point, the point he always brings it, to the risen Christ. The only argument, the, the only answer is the answer that they must believe in the saving work of Christ, and that can be their only hope. And because he speaks of the resurrection of someone, someone rising from the dead, and that, that we should put our hope in that person who rose from the dead, these super intelligent, super self-sufficient, modern, progressive people of that day mocked him, as you would expect. But Paul continues down the road, heading from this place on to Corinthians to do what he does best again, continuing his ministerial journey. And so what can we learn from this short but powerful interaction that Paul had with the Athenians? We're going to walk through a few points of application, things that Paul did and that we're still called to do today. The first thing is Paul engaged the culture and he spoke in a language that they understood and we must as well. When Paul got to Athens, he was bothered by what he saw. It said his spirit was provoked. He was distressed. He saw a city of people that were lost people that worshiped all kinds of idols. They blasphemed God in every way. They were confused. They lacked truth. And frankly, they were pretty evil. But this didn't, this turmoil that he had, these issues that he had, it didn't lead him to just flatly condemn them or have nothing to do with them, walk away and say, you guys are all going to hell. I'm moving on to someplace else. No, he engaged with them everywhere. Like we said, the synagogue, the markets, he talked with regular people. He talked with the smart folks. He was there. Literally, it says, anyone who happened to be there, he talked to them. 
He was living out what First Peter told us to do, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, and yet do it, what? With gentleness and respect. Paul engaged that culture, and he wasn't just there to win an argument and to look smart. He engaged the culture so that he could tell them the truth, the truth that he knew they needed. And so when he engaged them, he spoke to them in a language that they understood. When, whenever you see Paul talking to the Jews, what language is he using? He's quoting the Old Testament. He's proving the point that Christ is the Messiah by using proof text from Scripture. And that's great because this was a good way to engage the Jews. They were bound by the truth of Scripture. They needed to understand how the prophecies in the Scripture pointed to Jesus. But now for the Gentiles of Athens, he took a different route. He didn't begin his discussions by, by proof texts in Scripture. Instead, he wanted them to understand the truth by looking at creation, looking at God's sovereignty over that creation, God's sovereignty over everything that they saw in the world. And he even used sources from their culture, poets from their people before he got to any discussion of Scripture at all. Why would he do that? Why would he go down that road and approach them in a different way? Romans 1.20 says, For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So in that crowd, he didn't start with kind of thumping them in the head with Bible and Scripture not saying that Scripture is important, but he wanted to use the truth that was already made known to them in their hearts. A biblical proof text at that point wouldn't have even made sense to them. They wouldn't know what the Bible is. He used quotes from their own thinkers, in him we live and move and have our being. That's a, that's a Cretan poet named Epimenides. I've been practicing that name. I didn't get it right this morning, but I got it right this time. Epimenides, and the quote, for we are indeed his offspring, was from a Greek poet named Eratus. He was using quotes from people they knew, thinkers they knew. God had put truth in the hearts of people within their culture. And so what Paul is doing here is he's pushing these Gentile Athenians to think about what is this life? Where did we come from? What is our purpose? Why do we exist? And then he took that and then pointed them to Christ as the fulfillment of those questions. And we're called to do the same thing as Paul. We face a similar culture. We face a culture of idols and blasphemy and confusion in the very same way. And so how do we reach that culture? How do we speak their language, as it were? Well, we have to engage them the same way Paul engaged, but we, we don't, here's what we don't do. We don't have to change our doctrine to reach these people because Paul leads his way to truth, right? We don't have to change our services or change our churches or be seeker-friendly, nor do we uh, yell at their ignorance and refuse to engage them because they are different and evil. 
No, first, first we engage. We engage with people in our lives everywhere, just like Paul did at our work, at the store, at school, at ball games, wherever you are. Where do we see Paul? In the synagogue, in the marketplace, with anyone who happened to be there. That's where Paul was. Wherever he was, he was engaging and speaking truth. The, the faith that we have is a way of life. It's a full-time job. Somebody told me this morning on the way out of church, we, we get it wrong when we think church is in this building, that our faith is just, you know, two hours a week. We don't just put on our God clothes on Sunday morning and strip those off and go out into the world to do real life. No, our faith comes with us. And as we head out into the world, if we truly have eyes to see and a heart that is willing, God's going to give us opportunities to engage with people. Now, a lot of times we don't want to engage or we're nervous about engaging because we feel like we haven't really studied up on our apologetics enough, right? Because we hear a lot about that. Apologetics is arguments for what you believe. Now, you know, does everybody know all of the arguments for the existence of God? Have you studied that? Do you know all? Have you memorized every single scripture that you need to guide folks to salvation? Atheists are going to come out with a lot of questions. Do you have every argument that an atheist might throw out at you? Do you know the answer to everything? It's okay. We don't have to have all of those answers at our fingertips. Because look at Paul. Did Paul start these conversations with biblical apologetics? Did he, did he have all of those? Did he start with the Scripture and all the arguments? No. What, what Paul did is he took the time to understand their culture, understand their thought leaders, understand what the people were struggling with so that he could bring them the gospel in a way that they could understand, a way that they could comprehend. And so, yes, we should study. Yes, we should know our Bible. We need to have an answer for what we believe, and we need to be confident in that. But we need to start with gentleness and respect to engage that culture. The language that we need to start with engaging with initially is listening. Because often the first time, the first thing people need is a listening ear. People must be heard in order to listen themselves. And this is something we can all do. It's something that we are not good at. <laughs> Think about the last conversation that you had with somebody. What is going on in your mind? What are you going to say next? Do you hear anything that that person says? We, we tend to not. We tend to focus on what am I going to say? What do I need to say next? We're not good at listening. When's the last time you sat and you listened and you truly engaged with somebody? An unbeliever or a believer that's struggling with their faith. When we engage with people, when we're truly open to listen, what do we hear? We start to see people that are hurt, people that are full of pain. We start to have compassion on the struggles that people have. And that gives us a path then to tell them the truth through Christ, to, to share with them the peace that they can have. And so let's not get 
too caught up in our own idols of self-righteousness or moralism or, or being right or winning an argument to reach God or to reach people. We need to listen, have compassion, understand them so that we can then point them to the truth. And this gets to that next point. When Paul engaged the culture, they showed him their need, and he pointed them in the right direction. And so should we. I didn't get that. This happened last week. Last time. This culture was super religious. They had idols for everything, even the unknown God. And they had the main thought leaders here were the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans, this was a religion of hedonism and materialism. Achieve pleasure and avoid pain. Their motto, if it feels good, then it must be good. And the Stoics, that was a religion of self-discipline and self-mastery in a meaningless world. Their motto, what will be, what, uh, what will be, will be. Now, take out your phones and look on Instagram and social media. What do you see? These are the same thought leaders that we have now. It is the same thing, right? It is a religion of wealth and food and pretty people and exercise and pleasure and self-mastery and all of these things. The Epicureans and the Stoics are still leading the pack. They're still driving our idols. Now, what Paul saw, though, was that even though these people were the center of everything in the world... They had an emptiness. They had a need for something new. They had a need for something with purpose. They, had, they needed meaning. They needed truth. They needed something real. The, verse 21 says, they would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's what people want, something new, something shiny, something different. When we listen and engage with people, people share their needs. When I speak with people, a lot of what I hear is anxiety. People are anxious. A lot of people are worshiping this religion of hedonism and self-discipline, and they're worshiping everything else, and they're in a world that tells them they can have whatever they want, and they don't have it. They feel empty. They're still searching for something else. People search. This culture is searching for identity through their pronouns and their sexual identities. They're searching for purpose through social programs and politics. They're searching for connections through sports teams and social media groups and families or gangs or whatever group of people will accept me. They want connection. Why? Because nothing outside of Christ truly satisfies. We see that in the world, but if we're honest, we tend to see that here in our church as well. We struggle with idolatry and emptiness sometimes because we get confused and we start to search for satisfaction in other idols, in our jobs, our politics, or things, or even our children. Why do we do that? Why do we listen to the voices of the world that more stuff and more self-mastery, more of anything else but Christ is going to remove our struggle, make me happier, and satisfy me completely? When we do that, we're just giving in to the modern idols of the Epicureans and the Stoics that they were back then. We 
chase the next dopamine hit with our next Amazon purchase. We're continually fantasizing about the next vacation or the next home renovation that's going to make our life so much better. We obsess over the value of ourselves or other people based upon body size. Or we incorrectly tie our value to the performance of our children. When these are the things that are ruling our hearts and our minds, those are idols. They take Christ off the throne of our heart of our lives and they steal our joy. Now, Paul was brave enough to share the truth with the Athenians. What he did is he said, I'm going to tell you what the truth is because you are searching for freedom, aren't you? That's what he saw. He saw a people that wanted freedom from these slavery, the slavery of these idols. And freedom requires repentance and belief in the saving work of the risen Christ. That's where he pointed them to. Uh, Christ says in John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's the only freedom that will truly give us that peace. The psalmist says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Doesn't that peace sound amazing? Do you know this peace? This peace that surpasses all of the greatest food and drink and entertainment and community. Only in Christ can we have that freedom. Only in Christ can we have that peace. Folks, people are hurting. People are searching. People are in need. Are you willing to share the truth that will lead to this true freedom to them? But know that if you do, it comes with a cost the next point, Paul was willing to endure mockery for the gospel, and so should we. When, when Paul first spoke in the synagogues and the market, he was called a babbler. The literal term there is a seed picker, meaning he's an ignorant dude who just kind of sprouts things out, doesn't really know what he's talking about. He doesn't understand. I don't even know whether we should listen to him, but he's interesting. But he was, in, he was invited to speak almost as a joke. And then when he spoke of... <laughs> Be quiet, Siri. When he spoke of Christ's resurrection, he was openly mocked. I mean, who in their right mind would believe that God came down to earth, was killed, rose from the dead, victorious over sin... And then this fact, this thing, is what we should base our entire lives around. Well, that's what he said, and he was mocked for it. How did Paul react to, to being humiliated, being mocked in public? Did he walk away in shame, regretting that he shared the truth, that his ministry was ruined because now he had to deal with this unbearable mockery and shame and humiliation? No. No, Paul just was pleased to be able to glorify God in his ministry, to share truth. And he was even happy because 
uh, there were some that took hold of that truth. Paul understood that mockery and suffering are part of the Christian life. Look at Paul's life. He endured physical suffering. He was beaten and stoned and jailed. He endured verbal abuse. He spent his life being abused for the sake of the gospel. And he saw that this is what happens. When we look at Christ's example, we know he went through the same sort of suffering. He endured the cross, the mockery, the shame, the pain for our joy. And Paul understood that the message of the cross is not always received well. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We shouldn't be surprised when the truth of the cross is despised by the world. We don't always have the same strength that Paul had to deal with mockery. How do we deal with negativity from the world? How do we deal with it even when it's not connected to our faith? One of the greatest fears that people have is doing this right here, standing up in front of folks, public speaking. Why? Because we are scared about being embarrassed. Uh, I heard a story the other day uh, about a young man who had to do a play in school, and he was so scared, he was so nervous, he was physically ill and sweating, and he could barely get through it. And he made a vow after that time that he would never, ever speak in public again because he didn't want to go through all of that pain and that embarrassment. Now, I think we know how that, that gentleman felt, right? We've all been there. We're afraid of public humiliation and embarrassment. Why are we so afraid of humans not accepting us? And why do we let that fear attach itself to our faith in the public square? Why are we afraid of not belonging to this culture that clearly is not giving any answers? Peter calls us aliens in a strange land. Why does it bother us that we're called aliens? Why do we give the world so much power over our own purpose and peace? Are you willing to share truth to a hungry and dying culture, even if you're mocked and embarrassed? When we think about what we are eager to talk about, we are eager to talk about the things we're passionate about, the things we're excited about, the things that we're confident in. Do you have to be told to talk about your new job or the latest movies or your vacation coming up or your hobbies or your dreams or anything else that you're excited about? Nobody has to force you to do that. It feels natural. If you're not willing to discuss Christ, have you asked yourself why? Do you actually believe this story of Jesus and his resurrection? Are you confident in the truth? Tim Keller said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. All of our purpose and our hope and our life depends on this fact. And Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians, right? If there is no resurrection, 
Our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. We're liars. Our faith is futile. We are dead in our sin. Death wins. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is the source of our passion. This should be the source of our excitement. We can be confident in this truth. And this is the life-changing message of the gospel. And so if you struggle with this point, I'll point you in the same direction that Paul pointed. All of the Athenians, repent of your fear and your unbelief. Put away the idols that are taking the place of Christ in your heart. Put away the worship of your comfort or your self-righteousness or the worship of your children or your politics. Put away the fears that hold you back. Ask the Holy Spirit to transform your heart and mind and let God reign above everything else in your life. The, the story of the young man who vowed he would never speak in public again because it was just too much. That was Billy Graham when he was about 15. We know what happened to him. God so utterly transformed his life that he gladly rose above that immature fear and he spoke truth to millions of people for the rest of his life. Are you willing to serve the God who created the world, who conquered death, who reigns supreme, not just with empty words, not just in a little idle box that you pull out when you need to feel better. No, God asks for all of you, no matter the cost. Tim Geller said, Jesus cannot simply be liked. You either must reject him utterly or crown him king of your life. As our Lord, God requires lordship over every single area of our life. Are you willing to bow down before the throne of God? And are, are you willing to be used by him to reach a world that is hurting and struggling and searching for this peace? No matter the cost, I pray we all accept this call with humble and grateful hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this. Lord, uh, I pray that you would give us the boldness of Paul, the confidence in your truth, and the willingness to be your servants within our life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now let us stand and state what we believe in the Apostles' Creed.